Yeah, Jocko is Santa. A lot of people don't know that. Welcome to the With a Bullet podcast. My yep. name is Todd Golden. This is Matt Golden, my brother. Matt, Hi, why everybody. We... That was that was Mark Jacko Jackson. Why um, did I? And why did I play uh, some old school Jocko um, commercial? <laughs> greatness well we are we are doing our first australian chart um a little bit before um jacko or jacko's era it's um october 23 or october 23rd 1971 um from goset magazine which was like a teen magazine in australia but I, I kind of picked this, I mean, just to do something a little bit different. And um, Australia has always been kind of like the bizarro version of the States, as far as I'm concerned. So um, just seeing where they were at in 1971, we already did a 71 U.S. chart. So um, figured um, we'd try Australia. <laughs> Instead of bison, they have kangaroos and they have even more racism than we do. That that is true. That is true. <laughs> I know exactly what I was doing on October twenty third, nineteen seventy one. You're about three months old then. I know. I know exactly what I was doing. Okay, what were you doing? Shitting my pants. Yeah, probably. <laughs> Just like what I'm doing right now. <laughs> right. Yeah. So Australia, I learned a lot about at least early seventies Australian culture. And I, I learned some things about how diverse they were in their musical tastes, which I would not have necessarily uh, guessed like straight away. So, yeah, that is true. That is true. There's some, st- there's some musical styles on here I didn't anticipate. So it was kind of uh, interesting to listen to, as well as, like you said, some bizarro, like I see artists on here that were released different songs here in the States than they did in Australia. There's right. Yeah. I'm looking at that's one of your songs, but um, let's get with it. Okay. All right. Number 40, The Dawn Song by Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs. Uh, this is my first skip. Um, it's kind of like the Moody Blues, but the Moody Blues in kind of a bad way. Um, they did have a connection to the Bee Gees, though. Um, the guy who was the guitarist for the Bee Gees, who wasn't one of the Gibb brothers, um, was in Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs, um, Vince Maloney. So they got that going for him. That's way too much information for a skip. I'm sending you to Tasmania. Uh, okay. 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 You are not allowed on the Australian mainland at all. <laughs> and you skipped your first song, which is not cool. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't usually do that, but <laughs> but um, number 39 for you, we have Rod Stewart with Maggie May um, and Reason to Believe. Well, in, in a way, that's kind of a, a, a technicality because the actual, a lot of people may not know this. I think I sort of knew this and forgot about it, but the actual single released and at that time from uh, the Effery Picture Tells a Story album was actually Reason to Believe. Maggie May 
which is I would say Rod Stewart's best known song. Definitely, uh, yeah. Was not intended to be a single at all. It was the B side of Reason to Believe, and hmm. but radio stations preferred playing Maggie May on the B side, and uh, Rod Stewart's biggest hit was Born. Um, and this went. This was a huge hit. This went number one in Australia, Canada, U.S., and the U.K. And this was its debut on the chart down in Oz. Um, and this song was only recorded in two takes. Huh. I didn't know that. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's one of those songs that's so well known. And it's like, really, frankly, it's a good song, but I never want to hear it ever again as long as I live because it is overplayed. But right. you don't really learn, you know, it's it wouldn't be the first Rod Stewart song I'd delve into. In fact, every picture tells a story isn't even the first Rod Stewart album I would delve into either, although it's good. Um, so it's one of those songs that almost sits above the fray a little bit. Like you don't, I don't seek it out anyway. I'm sure a lot of people do, but so. Yeah. Yep. Actually, Never a Dull Moment, which is the album after every picture tells a story, is my favorite Rod Stewart album. What but, What's on that one? Um, well, it has, uh, you wear it well would be the hit off of it. Okay. That's not, I don't, that, that's not why, but it has, um, just a, not, not any songs that you would know by hearing them on the radio necessarily, mm-hmm. but just good. It's basically a faces album really on, under Rod Stewart's name. Hmm. So it, if you've ever heard the faces, um, a not as good as a wink to a blind horse, yeah, I, uh, yeah, I have that one. That's it, that's a really great album. It is. Well, Never a Dull Moment might as well be like part two of that album. Huh. It actually might be even better, to be perfectly honest. So that's the one to seek out. But then a lot of people are partial to is Acoustic Era, which is also really good, like Gasoline Alley and stuff. So yeah, uh, his first album, his self-titled album, uh, when he was soulful, which... You know, that's why so many people got disappointed when he basically started selling out to every trend known to man by the late 70s. I mean, because people were like, we know you're good. You don't have to do that. You can have your own voice. But never seemed like Rod was terribly interested in in uh, doing that. So, mm-hmm. but, oh, well. <laughs> right. At least we got uh, Baby Jane out of all of that. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, next for you, number 38 is Father and Son by Cat Stevens. Sometimes it takes a movie for you to get into a song or an artist, and that was the case for me with Cat Stevens. I never really even thought about checking him out until um, I saw the movie Harold and Maude, and he did the entire soundtrack for that movie, and honestly, it's one of the best things about that movie, and most of that soundtrack came from the T for the Tillerman album, which um, this song was on. Um, the song wasn't included in the soundtrack, presumably because um, the character Harold didn't have a father, but has a similar feel to the rest of that soundtrack. And in the song, um, Stevens plays both the father and the son. And when he's singing as the father, he has kind of a calm, deep voice. And when he's a son, um, he's just kind of belting it out. And the father is giving um, the son well-meaning advice. And the son's kind of reacting to that. Um, um, but he's not actually saying any of it back to his father. It's all in his head. Um, he knows he wants to go to a different path. 
but um, he doesn't actually have the heart to say it. Um, he's just thinking, okay, that's all right for you, Dad, but this isn't for me. But it actually has kind of an interesting origin. Um, Cat Stevens originally wrote it for a musical about the Russian Revolution. And it was supposed to be a dialogue between a peasant farmer and his Bolshevik son. And um, not really what I would think of when I hear this song, but sort of imagine that. But that project ended up being scrapped when he got tuberculosis. But it's been covered a lot of times. Um, Johnny Cash actually covered it twice. Um, Rod Stewart, who we just had, covered it. Um, Sandy Shaw, um, Zach Brown, and the boy band Boyzone <laughs> covered oh, it. Yeah, I knew that because I have all the Boyzone's albums. Right, and they actually they did a version with Cat Stevens um, reprising the father part for the song too. Um, so they they also did two versions of it. And it was also the subject of a plagiarism suit involving the Flaming Lips, which um, Stevens ended up winning. They um, borrowed the melody for this for their song Fight Test. And yeah. it's, it's really obvious, too. It is. Fight yeah. Test is a cool song. Um, but, yeah, they definitely... Uh, you know, I say that, and then I think of other songs that I thought were definitely borrowed from sources, and they didn't win their suits. But, yeah. I mean, even Flaming Lips kind of admitted it too, didn't they? I mean, once pretty actually... well. I mean, um, they mentioned that they kind of did it like without knowing that they were doing it, but then they realized it later. So yeah, bullshit. <laughs> I don't buy that, but you <laughs> right. know, whatever. They're they're both. Uh, you know, I actually probably would listen to Fight Test over Father and Son if you know if I had the choice, but. Um, both you good know, songs. Both. I mean, this is probably my favorite Cat Stevens song. Yeah. Well, first of all, I think Cat Stevens lied because he knew the definitive uh, piece of work on the Russian Revolution would be uh, Rasputin by Boney M. So he exactly. He saw the, yeah. He saw the future and was like, I don't want to deal with that. And <laughs> on a serious note, I remember hearing uh, Cat Stevens was. Um, an early part of my soundtrack when I was young, our mom really liked Cat Stevens a lot. I don't, I don't know how our dad feels about him. I've never really asked, but, um, but I remember, you know, he was in that singer songwriter mode with, you know, several other people. And then, you know, and then he embraced uh, uh, Islam in the late seventies and went pretty hard on it. Mm -hmm. And I remember asking uh, my mom at some point, I was like, how come we don't listen to, cat stevens and she's like well he got all weird or something i don't remember specifically what he said <laughs> but he really did disappear off the face of the earth uh for a long time and um almost had an air of mystery about him for people our age i think and um i don't know how i like cat stevens but i gotta be in just the right mood to listen to his style of music and, and it's not that i don't like it it's just you know i, I wouldn't seek it out immediately but it you know it, i can understand why people like it though Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. And I definitely prefer, like, his earlier stuff like this to, like, what he was doing maybe, like, three or four years after this when he was doing, like, um, Sam Cooke covers and stuff like that. Yeah, although I like his cover of Saturday Night. That's a good song. Eh, I, I'm not really a fan of that one. Oh, yeah? Well, go to hell. That's <laughs> the way it works around here. You don't disagree with, with me. 
So. <laughs> okay. But um, 37 for you is Sammy Smith with Help Me Make It Through the Night. This was a, I, I read this anyway, that it was a pioneering song in country music because it's largely credited with pulling rock and soul influence into the traditional-ish country song. And I say traditional-ish because this has a lot of the tropes of late 60s, early 70s country with some strings and kind of overwrought production. But I can understand why people feel this way. The song was written by Chris Christopherson. Um, And so I can see where they're going. Sammy Smith is actually sort of considered in the outlaw uh, universe outlaw country which came later in the 70s mainly because of her association with Christofferson. Um but I guess you know it's subtle but I can hear what people are saying in that um, you know this was a little bit more soulful in a different way than other country songs would have been at the time um, actually this was a much bigger hit in Australia than it was in the USA uh, this peaked at number seven uh, down under and it only actually got to number eight in the USA. Um, so Aussies love them some country music. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. We're going to find that out as we go along. This isn't the last one. So but Yeah. 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 I have one too. So I have, I have several more actually, but uh, moving on for you, number 36, if those lips could only speak by Dermot Henry. Uh, this is a skip. It's kind of Celtic folk music, uh, but I couldn't really find out too much about Dermot Henry, so just skipping it. There's nothing I love more than Celtic folk music. <laughs> I listen to the Pogues all day long. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but number 35 for you is Paul Revere and the Raiders with Cherokee People. Uh, Idiot Reservation. Well, you just spent more time than I intend to on this song because this is a skip because that song bites. <laughs> okay. I just don't like that song at all. Um, go ahead. What were you going to say? Oh, no, not, nothing, nothing. <laughs> Next up for you, a big one. Yes. Number 34, Won't Get Fooled Again by The Who. Uh, this is actually the second time I've had this song, believe it or not. I totally forgot or blocked out that I had Van Hagar's cover version of this on um, one of our mainstream rock charts. Um, Straightforward interpretation of this song would be that it's about the failures of the 60s. Um, It seemed like a revolution at the time, but in the end of the day, nothing really changed. But um, because this is Pete Townsend and he wrote it for his Lifehouse project, there's a deeper, dumber meaning to all of it. Um, in Lifehouse, the main character is in search of a universal chord, um, which will bond the band and the audience at the concert and lead them to spiritual enlightenment. Um, this song comes immediately after the universal chord is played, and the band and the audience um, rapture into heaven. And the song is written from the point of view of somebody who wasn't there at the concert, someone who know, knew about the concert and wasn't there and was just saying, oh, this concert was supposed to change the world. Um, why does my life still suck? You know, and what happened to everybody? <laughs> but um, this, the meaning of it's secondary because, I mean, that's it's dumb. But the most important thing is that this song rocks. <laughs> um, it's 
similar to Baba O'Reilly, um, both songs incorporate Townsend's experiments with um, coding people's personal information into um, audio pulses and feeding them into a synthesizer. And it also features the most ex- famous example of the Daltrey scream, um, which comes at the very end of the song. And it was also used as the theme song for CSI Miami. Um, a typical opening of that show would feature um, David Caruso putting on his sunglasses and saying a one-liner before it segued into Daltrey's scream. Um, I, I have a couple examples of that here. Um, okay, this is one of the other detectives. Her friend said that she was coming down to drink some mojitos and catch some sun. Well, it looks like something caught her. Yeah! <laughs> he died hours before this accident happened. So our accident wasn't an accident at all. Yeah! <laughs> it's a That's mon- the worst Roger Daltrey scream I've ever heard. I, I know, I know. <laughs> it's, um, the single edit of this is probably one of the worst butcher jobs ever for like a single edit of a song. Um, they they cut out the last um, won't get fooled again from the last chorus, and they really awkwardly segue into Daltrey's scream and the um, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Um, it just skips the um, synth solo and the drum solo entirely. And it's it's jarring. Um, to would be the best way to put it. <laughs> so maybe they. Maybe that was one cut too far. Yeah! Exactly, exactly. <laughs> well, I honestly think this is the greatest hard rock song ever recorded, no matter what artist. I have artists I enjoy more than... I, the, I would say Baba O'Reilly would be my pick. But Baba O'Reilly doesn't sustain it all the way through. Baba O'Reilly is a great song, but it's not hard rock all the way through. This is sustained eight minutes of of blistering hard rock other than the other than the part at the end with the synthesizer but that just sets you up for the roger daltrey scream and uh you know the windmilling pete townsend stuff at the end so i think it's the best hard rock song ever recorded i think the who are responsible for the best hard rock song ever recorded the best debut under their own name anyway i know they were the you know the the whatever they're what was their original band name? Is something the numbers? Um, the high numbers. The high numbers. So I can't explain. I think is the best debut single under their own name by any band. I think that's just such a statement of intent. Um, so they have those two things going for them. Um, and this song, I've, I, I've, I've like almost literally memorized that last part. Like every chord, every note. Um, I just think the who and the who. Also, the other thing they're responsible for, I think they have the best single guitar riff ever put on record, which is from the live version of um, um, of, of a quick one from the Rock and Roll Circus. Actually, they hit two different great chords in that. Right when it starts, you know, going crazy hard rock right in the middle, and then towards the end, act, I think that's the greatest piece of live rock and roll footage ever put on record. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Like the cleaned up one, you know, it, it's been around for a while and the kids are all right movie, like kind of a cloudy version of it. They've since HD'd it and, you know, you could and the and you have more camera angles. So it just it's it's that much more kinetic 
Mm-hmm. Um, so the who are responsible for all those things. And like you said, they're also responsible for some of the dumbest shit concepts ever. Like every time I've ever tried to read about the Lifehouse project, it's I just get weary with it like a third of the way through and I quit because it's so oh, stupid. Yeah. Convoluted yeah. and idiotic. And I have no idea what, you know, what kind of blow Pete Townsend was on when he was conceiving of that project. I know it was inspired by being disillusioned with Woodstock. And, you know, after the concert was over that, you know, Mas- Maxie Asger's farm was basically trashed and that you know pete townsend thought you know as well my generation you know what what the hell what do we just do you know that was the oh yeah yeah but where okay fine but then where he took that was so fucking stupid i mean i'm i don't know whoever talked him out of lifehouse uh but whoever it was uh did us all a great service because some of pete townsend's as as brilliant as he is some of his concepts over the years have just been um you know really ponderous to be honest pretty much i mean i don't even like tommy that much i mean quadrophenia is has its has a uh, quadrophenia is a good album and as a concept it works i think a lot better than tommy mm-hmm. uh, but you know it's just every time i hear of a pete townsend concept i'm like and then some of his solo ones too it's like oh boy <laughs> give it a wide berth yeah is a great song it, it's unfortunately everybody kind of recognizes it as a great song so it's sort of a little bit crossing over into cliche territory, not, not because of the who's fault, but mm-hmm. uh, I know the Indianapolis Colts run onto the field to it and stuff like that. I guarantee they're not the only ones. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, but the, but the, hearing that song for like the first time um, is a pretty remarkable experience. Oh yeah. Yeah. Cause it's just unrelenting. It just never stops. Right. Yeah, exactly. But Anyway, um, number 33 for you, we have Johnny Chester with Gwen. Congratulations. This was actually done with the Australian group Jigsaw, though not the Jigsaw of high, Sky High fame. Oh, damn. So <laughs> it's Jigsaw, the Australian country band. Um, this is a weird one. It sounds kind of like AM radio of the early 70s, uh, but with like a country bent to it. So... Um, Melbourne born Chester started in rock and, and was kind of an early kind of an, I guess he'd be his comp in America would be sort of Waylon Jennings or Conway Twitty and the respect, although he did it in actually probably more Conway Twitty because Conway Twitty started as a rockabilly artist mm-hmm. and then he morphed into traditional country where Waylon Jennings also started as rockabilly morphed into traditional country but then that morphed into outlaw country which conway twitty never did so i guess conway Twitty's the better comp but and then eventually became a very well-known uh, country artist in australia um especially in the early 80s when he won three straight country music awards of australia male vocalist titles male vocalist of the year titles in a row hmm. like like if we would have been living in australia listening to country music in the early 80s like we did in texas uh, we would have been digging on some Johnny uh, Chester. So yeah, the song itself is, I mean, it's mediocre, but um, he's a big deal. Yeah. Yep. So next up for you, number 32, You've Got a Friend by James Taylor. Uh, this is a skip. Um, boring, um, like the rest of James Taylor songs. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoy your dislike for James Taylor. <laughs> 
I can get, I, I don't know that I dislike James Taylor as much as you do, but I enjoy your dislike of James Taylor. <laughs> that's, that's good to know. That's good to know. Yep. <laughs> but um, 31 for you, we have um, Credence Clearwater Revival with Sweet Hitchhiker. This is also my favorite CCR song. Mm-hmm. Um, it never, like, uh, it's nowhere near as long as Won't Get Fooled Again, but like that song, it never lets up. Um, it just rocks with that. I mean, the the rhythm guitar in that is awesome. It just uh, creates, uh, CCR definitely had their own sound and a, and a, you know, a sonic palette that makes them instantly recognizable. Um, and this fits in that universe, only this is like, within the CCR universe, this is probably their most driving hard rock song, I would say. Because they have other songs that rock that are kind of hard rock, but are more like bluesy. I think this is just straight up like blitzing through it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also one of the very few CCR songs written about women, women or sex. Um, that's what this song's about. It's literally about pick, picking up a hitchhiker. And um, you know, there's a lot of kind of the automotive sexual tropes in it. If you read the lyrics, mm-hmm. um, which was rare for CCR. I mean, if you think about it, the only other song I could think of that would be about love or a woman would probably be long as I can see the light. Right. Would be the only other one I can think of. Um, the video, there actually is a video for this and it's pretty cool. It's a live performance with like these early seventies style uh, zooms and pauses in it, but it's interspersed with uh, members of CCR and, and some female hitch uh, hitchhikers riding around on their choppers in early 70s uh, northern california so huh. uh love this song it's probably ccr's last great song they i think hey tonight came out after this that's a pretty good song too but um this was my favorite one uh before things started to go the, basically before they started just hating each other and broke up but well this, so. this was their last album though right um no i think they had one after this okay i don't remember they, they were recording into 1972. Um, oh, I forget the name of the song, the single that came out. It was a more of a low tempo or a slower tempo song that came out in 72. Was it Someday uh, Never Comes? Might be. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, but that, but, but this was probably their last great album. I mean, that last album, I think was the one where Fogarty like made all the band members, do all the same amount of work and yeah he's like oh yeah. you want a song credit okay go ahead go ahead and sing on this and <laughs> basically being a dick and um you know allowing them to rise above their glass ceilings talent wise i guess and being john fogarty who is really diplomatic about it so <laughs> um so there was that but so yeah but i love this song it's a great song yeah it is it is that leads us to my long distance dedication. That's right. All right. So since this Australian chart only had a top 40, it did have a, an album chart underneath it, but I think it only went to the top 10. I, I think you're right. Um, yeah. So that allows us to go explore other charts. So I went to the U S album chart for mine. Okay. And at number 144 this week in 1971 on the U S uh, billboard album chart, Maggot Brain by Funkadelic. Oh, I, I, I noticed that one there. I yeah. kind of figured that you're going there. 
Well, this album was released on my actual birthday, July 12th, 1971. Uh, the only album I know of that was released on my birthday, which is odd because I was born on a Monday and that's, I don't know what day they typically release albums, but that strikes me as a weird day to do it. Um, and what a way to come out of the womb. This is one of, for lack of a better way to put it, heavier solo albums of all time and just a masterpiece. Um, there's something elemental about most of the songs on here. They're very raw, very intense, almost cult-like in some of them. Uh, it's very soulful, except, well, except for we're back in our minds, which is silly George Clinton stuff. But um, even the album cover is intense. You got a Afro woman crawling out of her own grave screaming or alternately buried up uh, to her neck screaming mm-hmm. uh, the maggot brain, so to speak. There's several great songs on here. Can You Get to That has always been one of my favorites. It's one of the best soul slash gospel uh you know, influenced songs of the early seventies and super stupid as epic. It's uh, basically a straight up hard rock workout. Um, But of course the crowning achievement of the album is the title track, which is 10 minutes of some of the best and most hypnotic guitar you'll ever hear. I mean, uh, uh, played by Eddie Hazel, who is one of a few guitar players that George Clinton collaborated with. Michael Hampton would be the other notable guitar player came along in the mid seventies um, but this is a world famous guitar solo by Hazel. And the myth is that George Clinton told him that his mother died, uh, just before we, he recorded it and asked him to convey his pain through his playing. That's not necessarily true. Clinton was whacked out on LSD when they recorded this surprise. And, <laughs> <laughs> well, they probably all were, but, and he told Eddie Hazel to play it as if he found out his mom had died, which is a big difference. Um, Clinton gave it the Clinton is you have to credit him though for making the song what it is because he um he first of all he stripped out the song actually was recorded with the whole band and there is a version of it that has I I listened to it that has the full band on it they released it when they uh, re-released Maggot Brain huh. uh 10 years ago and it's not bad but it, if you're you know we're so used to the original that all the other like weirded out funkadelic instrumentation of the time is distracting mm-hmm. and clinton recognized that when hazel recorded his solo he was like okay this is some good shit so he stripped other than the drums at the very beginning which are very echoey and spooky um he stripped everything else out and basically so it's a straight up just guitar only song and he said in his book that he echoplexed it several times on top of itself which gives it a really weird uh reverb and vibe to it um outside of the raw solo itself and um you know it so it's it's considered one of the best guitar solos ever recorded and i won't argue that i mean if you had to tell me what the best guitar song ever would be it would be right there um matt and i lived in northeast ohio for a time and this song is a tradition there it's played right around midnight by uh, used to be played by WMMS, but that's, they changed their format. And one of the classic rock stations took over the tradition of playing this right around midnight on Saturday nights. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I think at 1230 or no one thirty in the morning or something like that. Um, I think they play it earlier now, but that was the first time I ever heard it. And I was blown away. I mean, it, it, it's sort of, I guess the best way I could describe it, if you've never heard maggot brain is, 
Um, it sounds like the it sounds like the Dolung Bridge scene in Apocalypse Now looks. <laughs> okay. It's, well, yeah. I mean, you know, just it's like it's just like it's it's hellish in a way, but also yeah. pretty. Yeah. Um, this album peaked at 108 in the U.S., and I'm really shocked it actually got even that high. Um, but it's appreciated as a masterpiece these days. And I dedicate this to rising above it all before I drown in my own shit, <laughs> which literally from day one is what I've been trying to do. Yes, like my, yes. I didn't know it, but it's like my inspiration coming out of the womb. So, <laughs> yeah, it is. It is a really great album. So, yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, of the early Funkadelic, Funkadelic, most of Funkadelic actually broke up after this album. And um, it was really just Clinton uh, Bernie Worrell who played keyboards and sort of Eddie Hazel who came in and out of the band. He had drug problems. Um, so he would emerge and reemerge pretty much through the whole life of P-Funk before Hazel died. But um, so this is really the last stab of the original version of Funkadelic before uh, George Clinton made them, you know, by the late seventies, there was Lord knows how many people recording under P-Funk, but. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it's uh, it's really cool and uh, um, glad it's appreciated in its time. I've actually had that album for a long time now. I I got that one pretty early on, but yeah, yeah. So anyway, moving on, number thirty for you is right in the mode of funkadelic. <laughs> um, how can you mend a broken heart by the Bee Gees? Um, you do, you don't really think of the Bee Gees as being an Australian act, but they really were. Um... The Gibbs moved to Australia when Barry, Robin, and Maurice were all kids. Um, they settled around Brisbane, and they got their start as an act down there. They're kind of like a um, kid variety show singing group, like the Osmonds were here in the U.S. And um, they had their first real chart successes on the Australian charts. Um, but like a couple of... Uh, ah, a couple of other Australian acts I coming up have coming up later. Um, they found out that they had to leave Australia if they wanted to actually make it outside of Australia. So they split for England. And as far as I know, none of them ever moved back. Uh, but this was a few years down the line from that. And they had like their early success, but they had split up in the interim and, um, Robin went off and did his own thing for a while, but they're back together um, as a trio. And this was their um, big comeback hit. And it was a huge hit. It was number one in the U S and it's a duet between Robin and Barry. It's a ballad. Um, they had their fair share of ballads over the years, but this is a little bit more um, easy listening than the rest of them. Um, they actually offered it to Andy Williams first. Uh, it's a little bit more in his ballpark than it is the Bee Gees, but um, they decided to keep it anyway. And they wrote this and Lonely Nights, um, which was another big hit from the early 70s for them, um, in the same rehearsal, which was like their very first rehearsal after getting back together, which is pretty impressive. Um, they came out swinging. And it's... Um, it's been covered by a lot of people. The best version of it is by Al Green. Oh, yeah, big time. But um, Rod Stewart covered this one again. <laughs> we mentioned him covering Cat Stevens. Um, Johnny Mathis, which 
probably in his wheelhouse. Cher, Teddy Bendergrast, um, Barry Manilow, Julio Iglesias, and so on. But, um, I mean, I'm not really he- either here or there with this one. It's, I mean, don't really like it that much, but it's not really horrible. So, I like it better than I used to. It's all right. Yeah. Yeah. It has its moments. It, it rises to a kind of a magnificence in some parts. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. That's true. But um, definitely, I mean, prefer like the early stuff and like the disco stuff to this era of the Bee Gees, though. I prefer the um, the 80s Bee Gees. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> like like the ESP album or whatever. Yeah, one. Yes. One. Actually that is a good song. I shouldn't rip on that. Yeah, yeah, it's okay. <laughs> but number twenty nine for you we have um Healing Force with Golden Miles. Mellow organ rock alert. <laughs> this is sort of in green eyed lady mode is the way I would uh describe this one. Um, and based on a story I read on an Australian nostalgia website, Healing Force was part of the Melbourne head scene. Um, however, the band was basically done at this time, and the single was released with several several members reforming in the more successful group called uh, Chain. Um, I looked up the Melbourne head scene mm-hmm. and came up with nothing, so I think they made that shit up. <laughs> But it begs the question, um, what is the best song with our last name in it? Um, this ain't it. I, I'd probably can, say Golden Slumbers by the Beatles. I mean, that's the you, first one that popped in my head. You jerk. That's also my maybe, vote. Maybe um, Golden Years by Bowie? Golden Slumbers is better. Golden Years is a good song. but Yeah. What about... Um, Jim Morrison saying in uh, the American Prayer poem that there'll be great golden copulations. Sure, sure. <laughs> yeah. I'm not making that up. He really did do that. He did. I, I, I remember hearing it. <laughs> oh, next up for you. <laughs> I'm like, Matt, tell me the next song. Uh, number 28 is Mammy Blue by Joel Dade. Um, it's a skip. His name's actual, actually Joel Dade, and he's French. Oh, is he French? Okay. And this isn't the, this isn't the last French one we have. Either, yeah, then. yeah, that is true. Yeah, but this is a skip. It's this one. A cover of this was actually on the U.S. charts this week, but that's all I'll say about it. Mammy Blue sounds vaguely racist to me. Mm, yeah, it's. I mean, the song isn't really racist, but yeah, yeah. But 27 for you is Dusk with I Can Hear the Church Bells Ringing. Australian girl group alert. Yeah, actually, not really. Um, Dusk were were actually American and were formed by Peggy Centilia, who was in the Angels, the group who did My Boyfriend's Back. So she is the one or one of the one of the um, the singers on that. Um, she also sang background on Lou Christie's Lightning Strikes, which is pretty prominent. That's almost like a duet. Mm-hmm. Um, Dusk was formed by the same record label that formed Tony Orlando and Dawn. Get it? Oh, okay, okay. Oh, see what they have that go in there? 
um, it's not a bad song. You know, when I read the song title, I was like, this is going to be a skip. This is going to be horseshit. Like, you know, some dopey, almost like uh, Schlager style Euro, uh, like wedding song. But it's actually not very bad at all. Honestly, it's kind of an early 70s update on the early 60s girl group sound. So add in some more instruments, but uh, same vibe. So, okay. And there were girl girl group-ish songs out in the early 70s. They weren't necessarily all by girl groups, but the same kind of sound. So this fits right in. Dusk never made it in America, but um, had a few hits in Australia. So huh. they, had, they had that going for them. They should have named bands after all the various stages of the day. Like there should have been like, like midday sun and <laughs> three a.m. moon. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Next up for you, um, number twenty-six is "Camp" by Sir Henry and his Butlers. Um, Sir Henry and his Butlers were a Danish group. Um, Sir Henry's real name was Oli Bredal. Um, this is an instrumental. Um, there, it's it's kind of like an old timey vaudeville type song. Um, there's barrel house piano, um, kazoo's mimicking um, saxophones, little swirls of organ, and occasionally you could hear a crowd cheering. It's like something that would like accompany a striptease scene in an old movie. That's the best way to describe it. And that sounds absolutely horrible no, it's it's i like this one actually but these guys were primarily a british invasion sound like band um but at some point in 1967 when this was originally recorded they decided to go for this and um it may have been inspired by winchester cathedral which came out a year earlier than that i mean who knows it's kind of similar feel to that too and it was a hit in continental europe in 67 um, but it wasn't released in Australia until 1971 and obviously became a hit here. And it was used in a commercial for the candy Rollo in the UK. And um, some of the copies in the UK were released under the title Rollo Sensation. So, um, yeah, so this was a candy commercial, too. <laughs> Is it actually camp? Mm. No, not really. I mean, I, I guess you could say it's campy, but... They have kazoos mimicking saxophones. That sounds pretty camp to me. Yeah, yeah, I guess. I mean, does camp have, like, the same meaning in Denmark, though? I don't know. Who gives a fuck? Well, these guys were a Danish group. I know, but it's still camp by our yeah, standards. Yeah, I I mean, if they're being sincere about it, that even makes it more camp, probably. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> I don't like I don't like Denmark. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I have no opinion on Denmark whatsoever. <laughs> okay, okay. But 25 for you, we have Tommy James with Dragon the Line. This was Tommy James' biggest quote-unquote solo hit after he shed himself of the millstone around his neck that was the Shondells. <laughs> I mean, I'd challenge anybody to like, I, I, I wonder if there's Tommy James fans out there who are like, yeah, there was the Shondells era and then there was the solo era as if there's any difference like whatsoever. Right. Yeah. Uh, I hate to get all Ted Nugent and the Amboy Dukes on all of us here, but this song has improbably to me 
been seen as a code for doing coke. Hmm. Now I get it. I get the drag in the line, line of coke. Haha, I get it. But I'm not feeling it. I'm, I don't know. First of all, I don't think coke was that prevalent enough in the early 70s. I know it was around. Um, but it wasn't. People weren't necessarily. If they were writing songs about coke at all, it was about like being strung out like sister morphine, which isn't coke, mm-hmm. but, you know, could be. Um, and even if it was, Tommy James isn't the guy I envision writing a song about doing coke. Yeah, definitely you know? not. I mean, yeah, I just don't see that. And he did have issues with drugs. Um, but Tommy James made so many songs that just had nonsense lyrics in them. I mean, Moni Moni is his most famous song. And he got the inspiration from that by staying in a hotel room uh, across the street from the, um, what is it, the Mutual of New York right, yeah. building. That's where the Moni comes from. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Crimson and Clover is a great song, but, it, you know, I... I don't know what the hell Crimson and Clover is. I mean, mm-hmm. almost all of his songs are just, uh, you know, I guess Crystal Blue Persuasion is also thought of as a, um, as a, as a tribute to speed. Really? Which, well, it's, it's actually, about, it's, it's about Christianity. I think that, that well, sweet cherry think wine. It was I mean, he was, speed. he was also like a born again Christian. Yeah. So, but I mean, that, that but song, some people and, think it is. um, um, sweet cherry wine were about jesus basically yeah but my point is is that tommy james uh very rarely wrote straightforward and he was essentially like a more respected bubblegum artist really mm-hmm. um and i'd say that as a compliment i like bubblegum music and i basically like tommy james so i'm not buying that this was a song about coke um james himself said the song was about working so dragging the line meaning like working like literally like uh hanging up power lines oh yeah because yeah. when he said he was inspired by seeing that when he grew up hmm. so that's what dragging the line means i don't you know i've never really thought you know until i listen to this like i've heard this song a million times and it's not the first song i think of when i think of tommy james but it does have a cool bass line to it yeah and so yep. um it's it's pretty good yeah yeah i've, I've always oh, liked okay. this one yeah so Anyway, next up for you, number 24 is Sweet Sweet Love by Russell Morris. Uh, this is a skip. It's just kind of like a ballad. Uh, Russell Morris was Australian, though, so um, just a skip. Cool. <laughs> but uh, 23 for you, we have Hamilton, Joe, Frank, and Reynolds with Don't Pull Your Love. When I heard this song when I was younger, I always thought it was done by the same folks who did the Different Strokes uh, TV theme it, song. It sounds, it sounds like, that. like that, yeah. It was actually Alan Thicke who did the Different Strokes theme song. Um, but I've always thought Hamilton, Joe Frank, and Reynolds was the silliest band name ever. Now, Mystery Science Theater made fun of it, but that's not why I think that. I've always like thought that was like the wonkiest band name ever. I mean, it looks like, a, obviously, it reads like a law firm name. Like, yeah, yeah. Um, and I was like, why would they think that would be cool? And making matters weirder, um, after Reynolds, uh, well, first of all, let me explain the names. Hamilton and Reynolds are the last names of uh, two-thirds of the band. Joe Frank is actually the first name of the other member of the band. Okay. So they're like totally like blowing everybody's minds with this crazy naming stuff. <laughs> but um, making matters weirder, uh, Reynolds left the group 
you know, this is essentially at the time it was a one hit wonder. Um, this came out in 71 and then not much was heard from this band for a few years. Um, and Reynolds left the group in that period and they were reformed by Playboy records in the mid seventies, <laughs> um, after Reynolds left the group, but they were contra- contractually obligated, uh, to keep him in the band name when they made a comeback in the mid seventies. So <laughs> when you listen to fallen in love, there's no Reynolds and Joe Frank, Hamilton, Joe Frank and Reynolds. Huh. So for however, whatever that's worth, which is like nothing. Right. So I will say this. They are authors of two of their cheesiest songs of all time, this and Fallen in Love. That um, is true. And for that, yep. and for that, I do salute them for their AM radio uh, cheesiness. Yes. Yep. Because <laughs> I, I actually get a little fired up when I hear the horns that start this song. It's like, oh, yeah, we're going to get a nice slice of uh, slice of 70s cheese right now. <laughs> right yeah like the, and the lyrics are terrible it's like uh flying off in that big white bird that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah maybe i should join hamilton joe frank and reynolds i i, I think i nailed that one yeah 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 you you should yeah you, you should I'll be bet, the reynolds that'd be really, really i could be Ren. i could be any one of them i could be joe frank <laughs> yeah Anyway, next up for you, number 22. This is a good one. Eat at Home slash Smile Away by Paul and Linda McCartney. Um, Paul's in rock mode in both of these. Um, just simple, sloppy, driving rock music. Um, it's pretty similar to um, Helen Wheels, which came out a couple of years after this. Um, trying to do the same thing with these two. Um, but that song was a little bit more polished than these. These... I mean, are just like totally sloppy. And part of that is just that um, Linda is pretty like prominently featured on the um, harmony vocals on this, Um, just like way up in the mix. I mean, she's kind of notorious for having a terrible voice, but here it actually kind of works. And I, I mean, both really good songs. And it wasn't, these weren't released as a single in the UK or the US. Uh, Paul opted to release two other songs in those countries. Uh, the UK, he picked Backseat of My Car. And in the US, he picked your favorite song ever, um, Uncle Albert Admiral Halsey. God. Yes. And this song is better than both of those. And kind of. By, by, many, by many miles. Right. And I, I'm kind of surprised that he just didn't pick this one for everywhere. And, Actually, kind of surprised that too many people from the same album um, wasn't one of the choices, because that's honestly one of the best post-Beatles solo songs ever. But um, this was also, like, at the time seen as, like, by critics as, like, the only highlight from the album, because reviews from that were pretty mixed when it first came out. It's kind of grown in reputation over the years, but... Got slagged a lot of the time. So we're talking about the Ram album, correct? Yes, the Ram album. So, yeah, I like the Ram album. If I had to pick one Paul McCartney solo album to get, that's probably the one I would get. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a decent album, but um, this is, I mean, the one song that everybody said, yeah, this one's good. And even John Lennon liked it. And he was like in total Paul hate mode at the time. So. I think you have a big blind spot in why he didn't release this song in the U.S. and the U.K. 
Why? Why is that? Why? That would do to that would be due to the subject matter of the song. Yeah, possibly. I mean, no, possibly about it. There's no way they were going to release a song about uh, domestic oral sex in the early '70s in either side of the Atlantic, because that's what this song's yeah, about. Yeah, I know, but I mean, they could probably could have gotten away with it, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's nothing overt in it, but. <laughs> Um, I guarantee that played into the reason it wasn't released, which is too bad because it's a great song. I mean, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, it rocks. And and you mentioned Linda being in it, like you said, it actually kind of helps that song. It gives it an offhand feel. That was what he was shooting for, but that's also what he got savaged for in the early seventies because, you know, I don't I don't know what critics were expecting out of the solo Beatles. Uh, obviously, they didn't. You know. Paul wasn't living up to it, which in hindsight was kind of uh, harsh. Right? right. Yeah. Anyway, that leads us to your, or, or no, no, it does not lead to your long distance dedication. <laughs> no, no, we have number 21 for you, which is Danielle Gerard with Butterfly. This is my uh, second skip. Okay. Um, it is French. It was translated into English, um, which I presume is the version on the Australian chart, but meh, it's a skip. Okay. Okay. That leads us to number 20, Bangladesh, by George Harrison. Um, this was the very first rock benefit song. Um, without this, you don't have um, Do They Know It's Christmas, We we Are the World. Um, also, like, No Self-Destruction, No We Are the, All in the Same Gang, and so on. Um, the song came about when George was having dinner with Ravi Shankar, and Shankar brought out the situation that was going on in Bangladesh, which... George hadn't really heard about. There was a cyclone that hit at the end of 1970, which killed about half a million people. And Bangladesh was part of Pakistan at the time. And um, the government was essentially ruled entirely by the people in the western part of Pakistan, which is a present-day Pakistan. And after the cyclone, West Pakistan just decided to uh, withhold relief funding from um the eastern half which was bangladesh and that kind of added fuel to the bengali independence movie and they kind of declared independence struck out on their own and in response pakistan just started killing people left and right um somewhere between like three hundred thousand and three million people ended up getting killed in this genocide and after robbie was done telling george this he asked him if there was anything he could do to help and George almost immediately started organizing the concert for Bangladesh, um, which uh, featured appearances by Ringo, uh, Bob Dylan, and Eric Clapton. And this was its theme song, and it's more or less slapped together. It sounds like a All Things Must Pass outtake. Um, he doesn't really go into what was going on in Bangladesh in the lyrics, other than people are dying and it's a mess, which is total understatement. And the single, the concert, and the film of this um, ended up raising somewhere between $10 million. But due to, like, shady dealings by Alan Klein, who was George's manager, and the fact that they didn't register the concert as a charity, um, most of that money ended up getting held in escrow by the IRS for about a decade. So um, none of the money did make it to Bangladesh. It did make it to Bangladesh, but it didn't make it there until like the mid 80s but um i mean it's i 
not really a great song, but I guess it did some good. So I, I learned everything I knew about geography from a set of uh, encyclopedias we had that were published in 1971, I want to say. This is before your time, Matt. This is before we had the world books uh-huh. later. And so every bit of geography, even today, it's like I still want to call countries by what I learned out of that book because I read that stuff cover to cover and learned about all of it. Yeah. And to this day, like Bangladesh, it's like, nah, even though they had, they had, they had as you noted, uh, every reason to form their own country uh, because, of course, Pakistan itself was kind of a mistake of history in the first place in terms of how it got split up. But um, I, I'm still like, man, it should still be West and East Pakistan. <laughs> And right. Be- Beijing would still be Peking, which is what it was called when I was really young, even on the news, like up until the early 80s, they called it Peking. Yeah. And um, uh, not, they call Bombay Mumbai, right? Uh, or is that Calcutta? I think Bombay is Mumbai. Yeah, Bombay is Mumbai now, and um, Calcutta is Kolkata, I think. Kolkata, yeah. right, which is what it was called before it was anglicized, but... And uh, <clears throat> I'm also mad at you because when you listed off benefit things, uh, you didn't mention hearing aid. I, I should have mentioned that. I, I should have I mentioned the you. Canadian version, um, Northern Lights also. So, <laughs> yeah. And the um, the version of uh, uh, Mercy, Mercy Me, the Ecology with Belle Biv DeVoe in it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't think Sudden Impact made the cut on that one. <laughs> I don't think they did either. We should do a whole show dedicated to finding Sudden Impact. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Matt, that leads us up to your long-distance dedication, this time on time. Uh, I jumped the gun on the on the last one. So what do you got this week? Um, I'm going with number two on the Hot 100 um, this week, which is... Um, superstar by the Carpenters. Okay. And like a lot of Carpenters songs, this was a cover. Um, the original was done by Delaney and Bonnie, and it was written by Delaney from Delaney and Bonnie along with Leon Russell. And the idea for the song came from their mutual friend, Rita Coolidge, um, who suggested to them that they should write a song from the groupie's point of view. And this song is basically just that a woman, a groupie, falls for a guitarist, hooks up for, uh, hooks up with him, um, hears his song on the radio, and wants him back. Um, the original version actually was called Groupie too, and they put it out as a B side. And um, shortly after that, Russell and Rita Coolidge ended up in Joe Cocker's backing band, and they brought this song with them and. Um, it ended up on Joe Cocker's Bad Dogs and Englishmen album under the name Superstar um, with Rita Coolidge on lead vocals. And that album was a pretty sizable hit. And um, one of the people who ran out and bought it was um, Bette Midler. And she decided to cover the song on one of her very first appearances on The Tonight Show. And one of the people who tuned into that was Richard Carpenter. And this was the first time he'd heard it. Um, he wasn't really a Joe Cocker or Delaney and Bonnie fan, which isn't really surprising. Uh, but he liked what he heard, and he thought that it would be good for the Carpenters. 
And th- this wasn't the first time that Richard Carpenter got a song idea from TV. Um, We've Only Just Begun was originally a bank jingle. Um, But he took the song, he made the lyrics a little bit less risque because, I mean, it's the Carpenters. But otherwise, it's very faithful to the Delaney and Bonnie and the Cocker versions. And all all three versions of the song are great, but um, Karen Carpenter kind of puts this one over the top. Um, She just does a really great job of, like, selling... Um, selling the role of the woman um, basically pining away for this guitarist. And supposedly she did it all in one take, which is pretty amazing. Um, This is a great song. And I should probably mention that I was introduced to this by the Sonic Youth cover. Which is a good version, (laughs) actually. It it is a good version, but Richard Carpenter really hates it, apparently. Well, of course Um, he does. I, I, I I don't know if that just has to do with the song itself or the fact that they did kind of like a tongue-in-cheek tribute to Karen on one of their albums that came before that that made him dislike it. I forgot they did do that, didn't they? Yeah, they did. But, I mean, really great song and um, let's see, um, I'd just like to dedicate this to Sad Guitars, I guess. Okay. You could also dedicate it to, um, um, you know, making sure you don't drown in your own shit as well. Like oh, I do. Okay. Well, no, like like my dedication. Oh, okay, okay, yeah, yeah. You know, you had to rise above it all before you drown in your own shit. Yes, I, 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 I was, yeah, I was thinking that had something to do with a car. No, no, there's no inappropriate uh, no inappropriate intent there. Apropos of absolutely nothing, it's funny you bring up Superstar, which is a great song. Probably my favorite Carpenter song. Um, you know, because it's, even though it's maudlin, it's not maudlin, like bad maudlin. It's good maudlin. But I was, right. I was on the Guardian website yesterday. I think it was the Guardian. And they had a story about um, how COVID has affected a Carpenter's cover band and how they can't get any venues. Uh, oh, really? I, I didn't see that one. The Guardian, or maybe it was when I was researching this chart and it was an Australian uh, uh, news source. But the picture that they had with it was hilarious. I mean, uh, you know, this cover band where both people tried their best to look like Karen and Richard Carpenter. And the Richard Carpenter guy had this little toy dog, like in his pocket. <laughs> like his shirt pocket, not his pocket. But, and it was just, it just cracked me up. It's like they're really digging the bottom of the barrel for COVID stories if you were down to Carpenter's cover bands. Oh, yeah, yeah. But um, so, yeah. But it's it's either this or calling occupants of interplanetary craft, which I, I'd have to go if my second would probably be goodbye to love. Because the the guitar solo on that is well, awesome. Kathleen loves the Carpenters, but she loves the Carpenters that ever everybody else loves. You know all the all the wholesome stuff. So we <clears> used <throat> to have. I don't think we still have it, but or maybe it was on a tape. Uh, she had the greatest hits, and and calling occupants of interplanetary craft was on it. It, it was it, uh-huh. yeah. and I'd always put that one on because you know it's definitely not in the normal wheelhouse of the Carpenters. 
And he'd be like, oh, right. my God, I hate this song. I was like, and actually, at first, <laughs> I kind of hated it, too. And then I kind of liked it just to be a, you know, a wise ass. But now I actually kind of like it right. legitimately. Yeah, it's it's not bad. It's weird. That one isn't that it's, bad. it's weird that the Carpenters recorded it. It's like they briefly went on acid or something. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. But um, number 19 for you, we have Dan and Ansel Collins with Double Now Carol. we're talking. We're talking about some early reggae. Um, this sounds yep. like Pass the Ducci, 12 Years Before It's Time, with a bit of Star Child by Parliament uh, thrown in with the kind of scatting that's in it uh, via Ramsey Lewis trio. That's what I think of when I heard this song. And if that sounds ridiculous, it's not because it actually pretty much rules. And uh, Dave Barker and Ansel Collins, which by the way, I found like 90 different versions of how to spell Ansel Collins's first name. I mean, I've never found <laughs> any definitive uh, way because some references like on this one on the go set chart that we've been referencing it's spelled A-N-S-I-L, and then I saw a lot of A-N-S-E-L, and I saw a lot of A-N-S-E-L-L. Uh, like, nobody mm. could ever figure it out. But those guys were both from Jamaica, and this was produced by the legendary Lee Scratch Perry. Um, and it has all the hallmarks of a Perry reggae song. Um, it's dissonant. It's It's barely a song. It's basically just a beat that they kind of talk over once in a while. Um, and sort of brag over, I guess, um, because one of the funniest lyrics in this is um, uh, repeatedly in the song, he just goes, I am the magnificent W-O-O-O. And he never explains what <laughs> W-O-O-O is. I don't know if it's supposed to be a radio station, but that would be an American radio station. And I doubt, you know, that was an influence at all on Dave and Ansel Collins, unless they're picking it up down there. Um, right. So it has that kind of bright, like contextless braggadocio. That's why it reminds me of Star Child from uh, Mothership Connection. But um, this song had a lot of distinctions. Sly Dunbar played drums on it, and this was the first thing he ever recorded. Um, this actually went to number one in the UK, um, and it was only the second reggae song to do so um, in the UK after The Israelites, which came out in 1969 and was a hit here as well. And so was this. This went to... Uh, Surprisingly to me, this went to number 22 in the U.S. So um, really cool song. It's more of a vibe than a song, uh, but it's a really cool vibe. Right. Yeah. Yep. Next up for you, number 18, The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down by Joan Baez. Uh, This is a cover of the band, obviously. And Joan changed it slightly by flubbing a couple of the lyrics. Um, instead of General Stoneman's cavalry um, ripping up the tracks to Danville, you have so much cavalry doing it instead. And instead of Robert E. Lee passing by, you have the Robert E. Lee, which I assume is a riverboat that was named after him. <laughs> it's it's also considerably more upbeat. Instead of uh, Virgil Keane kind of mournfully remembering how he lost his job on his railroad, um, his brother and how Robert E. Lee stole his best firewood. He's cheerfully remembering how he lost his job, his brother, and that a crew from a riverboat named after Robert E. Lee stole his best firewood. Um, Joan Baez is usually much better at interpreting songs than this, but 
Um, this one's a total dud, and um, apparently Levon Helm also really hated it um, and actually gave it as a reason why he didn't perform it after the band broke up. But it was the biggest hit of her career, though. Um, actually went top five here in the U.S., here and in the U.S., and it was actually one of only two top 40 hits that she ever had, which I was kind of surprised to find out. The other was much better than this, Diamonds and Rust, which is kind of a Bob Dylan diss track. But, um, but yeah, yeah, it's... You know, it's really, funny. Not really when, that great of a cover. <laughs> when I was younger, this was my exposure to this song because back in the 70s AM radio, you would hear this song quite a bit. Um, oh so yeah, I, I remember bet. hearing I bet this would. song quite a lot, even by the time I could remember hearing songs in the mid to late seventies. And uh, um, so this was my context. It's kind of proto Helen Reddy, is I guess the way I would describe it, kind of. And yeah, uh, you know, I, I'll give her credit. I mean, to me, if you think of Levon Helm and the band, this would be the song that is most distinctive in terms of Leon Helmishness you know, with his, with his drawl and all that. Um, and it's a great song by the, by the band. Uh, right. I'll give her points for trying to cover it because that would not be an easy song to cover by it. But like you said, it didn't really come off. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I actually, um, I, I mentioned the part about the Robert E. Lee to our dad when this was on the radio, when I was in the car with him and he had never noticed that before. He was like, Oh God, why did she do that? but but anyway number 17 is um jerry monroe with it's a sin to tell a lie this is a skip this is just bad bobby shermanish tripe okay okay that leads us to number 16 for you uh butterfly by matt flinders and this is the english version of danielle gerard's butterfly which uh, but you skipped at number 21. Yeah. And that version's better than this one. Um, since that version's in French, you don't realize um, how insipid it is. Um, Matt Flinders kind of sounds like Burl Ives. Um, that's the best comparison I can come up with. And he was Australian, and he was took his stage name from the explorer Matthew Flinders, um, who is actually the first person to... Um, circumnavigate the Australian continent, and he was the one who actually gave it its name. Uh, Before that, it was known as New Holland. What a pointless endeavor. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, I I mean, it'd be like if an American singer went by Amerigo Vespucci or something like that. Yeah. But I did find one clip of this from Australian TV, and the most interesting part about it was that um, it's really obvious that Australia was way behind us in terms of broadcast technology um, because it looked like something from the 50s, like a I Love Lucy episode or like the Honeymooners or something like, like, like that. In a scope or something like that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So. I, I noticed in the Australian TVs, TV clips, they were all in black and white. Every single one of them I looked at from this period. Right. Yeah. I mean, some countries did like wait until like the mid seventies. Like I think Italy didn't introduce it until like 
almost the 80s, like 1979 or something like that. Yeah. But, but yeah, not a great song by any means. But number 15, we have Daddy Cool with Eagle Rock. This is considered to be one of the greatest Australian rock songs of all time. And it, and it is great. It's really good. I mean, it has great rhythm guitar in it very much in the tradition of uh, fellow Aussies, the easy beats before them and the, and ACDC after them, this is nowhere near as hard as ACDC, but same, same back, you know, backing riff, um, riff related uh, guitar. Um, This song was an absolutely massive hit in Australia. It was number one, for 10 weeks straight, which was a record for a long time mm-hmm. in Australia. And I honestly, I can't really figure out why this was not a hit here. Um, right. Yeah. It's, it's in the vein of all right now by free again, probably not quite as hard as that. It's more of a driving. It's probably if all right now and uh, get it on by T-Rex had a baby, this is what would be born. Right. Uh, yeah. Um. So I really don't know why maybe it's because Daddy Cool didn't have a good record contract in uh, the UK or the US, uh, you know, who knows. But this could very easily have been a hit here as well. Maybe not number one for 10 weeks. It's not that great, but uh, it, it certainly could have had an impact. Um, but regardless of that, it did influence one big American hit. Um, Elton John heard this when he was touring Australia and loved it so much that he wrote Crocodile Rock based on it as a tribute. <laughs> So that's Go huh. Rock's influence on American charts, as well as uh, it's well, by the way, Eagle Rock, I should point out, is an old school African-American term for fucking. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Which makes it really funny that the only time I've ever heard this song live uh, was when the Wiggles performed it in the early 2000s when my kids were toddlers. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. And I had no idea. I mean, at that point, I never heard this song before. I thought it was a Wiggles song. And I was like, oh, this song kind of rocks by the Wiggles Um, (laughs) because it's a relatively faithful version of it, to be honest. So faithful that the Wiggles actually got Daddy Cool lead singer and the guy who wrote this song, uh, Ross Wilson, to sing it on the record. They like made him into like an honorary Wiggle. (laughs) Nice. And, you know, so I remember like when we had God, we had every Wiggles DVD uh, known to man when our when my kids were toddlers and this was always a highlight when this one popped up so it is a really great song it's pretty central to australian rock culture and uh one that should have been a hit over here oh definitely yeah uh next up for you speaking of somebody i've already referenced today number 14 yes. is i don't know how to love him by the recently deceased helen reddy right yeah I, like the Bee Gees, um, Helen Reddy was an Australian expat. She was originally from Melbourne, but um, she moved to the U.S. in the 60s after she won kind of like an American Idol style contest in Australia. And the promise, there was a prize that was promised to her that she would um, get a chance to record a single in New York. Um, but when she showed up at the record label in New York, they basically just slammed the door in her face. Um, but she decided to stick around anyway and took a few years to establish herself in the States. Um, but she eventually ended up getting a one-off single deal with Capitol Records. And around the same time, one of the executives from Capitol 
um, saw Jesus Christ Superstar and thought that uh, the song I Don't Know How to Love Him would have the potential to be a massive hit. And um, the guy was determined that he was going to be the person who got it on the charts first. Um, he offered it to Linda Ronstadt, um, but she hated the song. So Reddy was next in line. She wasn't, she wasn't really a fan of the song either, um, but she agreed to do it as a B-side, and um, she totally knocked it out of the park. I mean, it was really obvious to everyone involved that it shouldn't just be a B-side, and um, had a pretty slow rise up the charts, though. It took about five months for it to crack the top 40, but once it did make their... Um, MCA, who owned the rights to the cast recording, noticed it there and decided to put out Yvonne Alleman's original version as a single. And those two versions kind of had a race up the charts. And Reddy ended up winning. She made it to number 13. Um, Alleman stalled out at 28, but um, she should have won because her version's better. And it's it was a much bigger hit in Australia than it was in the States. It made it to number two in Australia. And it's been covered numerous times over the years. Um, Petula Clark covered it. Um, Sinead O'Connor covered it. Um, Sporty Spice from the Spice Girls. And both Agnetha and Frida from ABBA um, covered it. So kind of a standard. And um, it was spoofed in Mr. Show also. Um, by the actress Jean Triplehorn um, in their spoof of Jesus Christ Superstar. But um, decent song. I mean, this version of the song is decent. So, yeah. Cool. <laughs> but number 13, we have Carol King with It's Too Late. I'm skipping this, not because it's bad, but um, because I had to skip something. Okay, okay. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I think people know the story of Tapestry and all that, so, you know. Right, yeah. yeah. No need to belabor it. Um, okay. Number 12 for you, Banks of the Ohio by Olivia Newton-John. And like the Bee Gees and Helen Reddy, Olivia Newton-John was also an Australian expat in 1971. Um, she was living in the UK at the time, but unlike the Bee Gees and Helen Reddy, she eventually moved back. Um, this was when she was in the country phase of her career. And she's tackling the bluegrass country standard, the Banks of Ohio, um, which was written in the 19th century. And it's a murder ballad. And the gist of the song is that Olivia and her boyfriend go on a walk along the banks of Ohio, of the Ohio River. And she ends up stabbing him because he won't take her for a wife. Um, lyrically, it's a lot darker than anything you'd expect from Olivia Newton-John, but she's still like as upbeat and cheerful as she is on like all the rest of her songs. So a um, little bit of a contrast there, but this was her first number one hit in Australia and her second appearance on the Hot 100 in the States. Um, she was actually on the Hot 100 this week. Um, her cover of George Harrison's If Not For You was the first. But this was kind of the start of her career. And um, I mean, it's an Olivia Newton-John song. That's pretty much all you can say. You know what they should have done with this? 
they should have gone all early 70s uh, variety show style. And they could have had Ohio- Olivia Newton-John do this song and Neil Young do Down by the River like as a mashup, like 70s variety show style. Yeah, and then, and then they, they could have gone into Ohio after that. <laughs> and they could have done another song that I have coming up as well. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> but number 11 for you, we have T-Rex with Get It On or Bang A Gong, Get It On. This is a skip. because Really? Really? Yeah, well, let me explain. <laughs> so we do these podcasts in two takes. And as we were between takes, I was like, Oh shit, I only skipped four songs. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> and I didn't want to skip double uh double barrel or eagle rock, so this got skipped. Huh. It wasn't it wasn't this is a skip because I'm an idiot. Okay. I didn't intend to skip this. I would have skipped <laughs> one of the other songs earlier. However, I do want to let this out. Um, and this is literally the way I wrote this. This is clearly inferior to power station cover from 1985 no no and i have no, you've already you've already right on cue i said in parentheses triggers matt <laughs> i is... can read you like a book yes yeah <laughs> although i do think the power station version is awesome so there okay okay this okay. Uh, t-rex's version is also awesome but um power station's version rules so okay. triggers Matt. Anyway, uh <laughs> number ten for Matt is signs by Five Man Electrical Band. Um well the Five Man Electrical Band did have five members and some of those guys did play electric guitar, so the name's accurate. Um they're Canadians, they're from Ottawa, and they're originally named the Staccatos, but their manager decided um, to change it for them because it sounded dated, sounded like like an early '60s vocal group or whatever. But they're somewhat successful in their homeland. But this is really the only thing they're known for outside of Canada. Um, the inspiration came from a trip that their lead singer Les Emerson took through California. He was just pissed off about seeing billboards everywhere um, blocking his view, so. He decided to write an anti-sign manifesto. And the song's pretty episodic. It starts with him noticing a hiring sign which says, long-haired freaky people need not apply. <laughs> so he so he stuffs his hair in his hat and applies anyway. Then he yells at a guy for putting up a no trespassing sign and gets kicked out of a restaurant for not wearing a tie. Finally, he goes to a church. And he sees the only welcoming sign so far, which tells him to come in and pray. But he doesn't have money for the collection basket, so he makes a sign for Jesus. And um, that um, that verse alone would probably like put this into the Christian rock genre. Um, I mean, Jesus freaks were kind of a thing at the time, so maybe um, the Five Band Electric Band were Jesus freaks, or maybe they're just aligning themselves with them. But um, I, to be honest, I'm more familiar with Tesla's version of this than the five band electric band version, because it was like a big hit when I was like 12 or whatever. But the one thing I will say about this version is that the intro always fakes me out because it sounds a lot like the intros to LA woman and 
Steve Miller's living in the USA. So it always freaks me out. I hear like the first 30 seconds of this is like, oh, it's LA woman. And then it's just like, oh shit, it's signs. You know, <laughs> the lyrics of this <laughs> crack me up. I'm reading it right now. And I'm trying to picture this, like the, the songwriter of signs. I have no idea who wrote it or what their politics are. But this just strikes me as somebody who's a future MAGA. I, I, I just, Oh, definitely. Yeah. You know, it's like at the time they were really, you know, it was because it's really a whiny ass song. To it be is. Perfect. It is. And, you know, I picture the person who wrote this being the guy who's on the other end of the lyrics. Like he would shoot the dude when he hopped his fence or <laughs> I'm picturing the first verse in particular as some sort of mask wearing uh, thing instead of the long haired freaky people. Like, oh, yeah. Yeah. Guy shows up with a mask and I ain't going to hire you because you're wearing a fucking mask, that kind of thing. And then the whole church part of it at the oh, end. It's yeah, really, yeah. I, it, there's musical aspects of this song that are bad, but lyrically it's kind of, uh, you know, it's dated without a doubt. That, yeah. Yeah. Definitely. <laughs> but number nine for you, we have Tony Christie with I Did What I Did for Maria. <laughs> this song is weird. I mean, first of all, Tony Christie is like a fourth-rate uh, Tom Jones. So think yep. that. That's your template <laughs> for me describing this song. Um, however, the song itself is about going to the gallows for a revenge killing for the death yep. of the protagonist's wife. Um, so it's got that going for it. So imagine someone throwing panties at Tony Christie for this song. It's like, <laughs> it's like he's proud of it, too. I mean, I've, I've heard songs you know, about going to the gallows for, you know, like gallows pole by Led Zeppelin and all that. Um, mm. Or probably even banks of the Ohio that you mentioned that, um, you know, might, I don't know, maybe express a little bit of regret in the lyrics. Mm -hmm. This express, this is like proud of it. It's like, yep, I killed him. Um, <laughs> and I'm proud of it. I'm going to the gallows. It was all worth it. It was basically the, the, um, the vibe of the song. Um, it's quite a slice of something. I mean, it's also got what I can only describe as dissonant French horns in the middle of it, which is even weirder for, keep in mind, this is like fourth rate Tom Jones pop music, basically. Um, add to that in the video, Christy is singing in front of what looks like a happy bandstand in a park. Uh, mm -hmm. Kind of what the set looks like. Or alternately, for those who know this reference, it looks like the Hello Milwaukee Smiley logo from the <laughs> oh, nice, Channel nice. 12 promos. So uh, <laughs> this is one of the weirder songs I've had on here because um, and, and because it's fifth rate Tom Jones, uh, it's sung with all that gusto. So all of the, you know, lack of any uh, regret about killing um, uh, doing the revenge killing just comes through even more so. It's a it's a weird one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This one was pretty weird. Anyway, that leads us up to a uh, uh, song that couldn't be more polar opposite in tone. Number eight, "Never Ending Song of Love" by Delaney and Bonnie. Kind of mentioned Delaney and Bonnie a little bit in my long distance dedication. Um, they were husband and wife duo. He was a session musician who um, got a start on the TV show Shindig. And she was a former iCat. Um, she was actually the first white iCat. And they're probably best known for who they were friends with. 
Um, they're tight with Eric Clapton, George Harrison, and Leon Russell. And they collaborated quite a bit with all three of them. I mentioned that they wrote Superstar with Russell. And they also wrote Let It Rain with Clapton. But this was the first hit that they had on their own. And um, the concept of the album that it came from was that they were trying to uh, recreate the jam sessions that they would have at their hotel room um, after their shows. And this sounds like it. it. It sounds like it was recorded live, but it was probably recorded live in the studio. You can hear people like hooting in the background and stuff like that. And it's pretty simple, like campfire sing along style country song. And since I mentioned some of their friends earlier, um, this album did feature a lot of their famous friends. I'm assuming a lot of them appeared on this song too. Um, Russell was on there. Um, all of the Derek and the Dominoes were on it. Um, Grant Parsons was on it. Um, Clarence White for the Birds and so on. But um, it's also been covered a couple times on the country charts or by country artists. Ended up on the country charts. Um, the Osmonds had a country hit with it. And it was actually Crystal Gale's very last hit was a cover of this. But it's, I mean... It's a decent song. I mean, it's not really, I mean, either Del- good or bad, really. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of how I feel about Delaney and Bonnie in general. It's like Eric Clapton's early 70s, um, you know, style, including Derek and the Dominoes, was really heavily influenced by Delaney and Bonnie. I mean, um, and so was George Harrison coming out of the 60s. He didn't stay that way, but um, there's hallmarks of, Delaney and Bonnie and his early solo stuff too. And it's like every time I've ever heard the Layla album or um, Eric Clapton's first solo album, it's like, damn, this shit sounds good. I'm going to go check out Delaney and Bonnie. And then Mm -hmm. I do. And it just, something just doesn't, it's not bad, but it doesn't grab me the same way. Um, Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's kind of how I've always felt about them. So, um, but, but they are interesting in that they had that influence without, and they, you know, it's not like they didn't sell records because they did, but uh, they just didn't have the same influence um, on their own. I mean, you can even point to like, like early Little Feet and stuff like that was kind of in that same universe in terms of right. sound. Uh, you mentioned Leon Russell, uh, mm-hmm. obviously. And so I like that kind of laid backish, southernish uh, type of vibe that they have going, but I like it out of other people, it seems like. Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely agree with you there. Yeah. But um, let's see. Number seven here, we have John Congo's with He's Gonna Step On You Again. Yeah, this is a little bit of psychedelia after its time by way of South Africa, which is where John Congo's is from. Um, and then it jars back to like early 70s AM radio pop, like in the middle of it. So, um Actually, what this truly sounds like is T-Rex. If instead of the glam guitar uh, tone that he kind of pioneered, it had a psychedelic guitar tone to it. So think of that when you're thinking of John Congos. Um, Really good song. um, Pretty cool. Never made it here. Uh, The Happy Mondays covered it in 1990, only they shortened its uh, name down to Step On. Um, (laughs) So that's probably what a lot of people would have heard this song through. Um, but it's cool. I like this one. It was pretty good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah it was. 
Next up for you, number six, I woke up in love this morning by the Partridge family. This is obviously for the Partridge family TV show. Um, it was actually made its debut on the debut episode of the second season, which was called Dora, Dora, Dora. And in that episode, the Partridges learned that their manager, Ruben. Yeah, um, Ruben. I love Ruben. Booked, yes. Yeah. But he booked them as a backing group for a beautiful singer named Dora who can't really sing. And I'm assuming like David Cassidy, like developed a crush on her or whatever. But the episode is also notable because it was the debut of the Come On, Get Happy theme song. And it was also the debut of the second wise-ass Chris. So, is that going for it? But this is bubblegum, which is to be expected for the Partridge family. And like all their songs, it only features David Cassidy from the group on the TV show. Um, The Wrecking Crew and the Ron Hickling singers are backing him up here, not um, Danny Bonaducci or Susan Day. Um, But it was written by the team that wrote um, Tony Orlando and Dawn's um, Knock Three Times and Tie a Yellow Ribbon Around the Old Oak Tree. And this song's better than those. Um, I actually like this one more than I Think I Love You. It's kind of a decent bubblegum song. And um, Weezer actually covered it. They did like a really super half-assed cover of this on one of their like late 2000 albums, which isn't that great. But um, I mean, this is about the best you can do with the Partridge family here, this song. So if I uh, named a band, I would call myself Ruben Kincaid. Yep. Yep. I I I probably, I probably wouldn't really do that, but it sounds cool to say it. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I mean, he was like the, the archetypal, um, like sleazy manager, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I might actually call myself Vic Ferrari. Yeah, there there is a band, like a local band in like Northeast Wisconsin that is named Vic Ferrari. That sucks. Oh, okay. <laughs> Back to the drawing board. Yeah, they're they're like a regular at like rib fests and like brat fries and stuff like that. <laughs> Damn it! I have to find a different TV character to name a band after. Right, right. Um, the Shmoo Baby. Oh, that'd be good. I could, I could go with that. Yeah, yeah. But number five, and this one is a total doozy here. Um, <laughs> Tom Clay with What the World Needs Now. So Detroit DJ Tom Clay asks kids questions about segregation and hate and then plays audio clips uh, that sort of embodied the strife of the time and they're played over a pretty cool instrumental of what the world needs now which is of course a Bacharach David uh, song you know basically just the horns from the slow horns from that which that part of it's okay Uh, and then it's also played over a much 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 less cool version of Abraham Martin and John which sounds like it was recorded for like uh, the Sonny and Cher show or something like that it sounds awful Um, Yeah, this is a piece. I can't even call this a song because it's not really a song. Um, There are times in it where it's pretty powerful, like the 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 audio they play from the RFK assassination um, is 
you know, heartbreaking to listen to, especially knowing that it was the second Kennedy assassination of the 60s. Um, <laughs> but unfortunately, it's also cheesy all at once with some really silly sound effects that kind of introduce the various Abraham, Martin and John moments of the song. Mm-hmm. Like they do this little like shimmering reveal like here we go we're about to play rfk getting killed for all of you and it's like <laughs> you know it kind of ruins the song actually can be poignant but all of the production of it um really takes a lot away from the power that they were going for um and i have to admit matt i still don't know what biggery is <laughs> Yeah, (laughs) I'm referencing that. And it's actually a cool idea that Tom Clay had. He talks to little kids um, and asks them stuff like, what's segregation? I don't know what segregation is. And he asks, what's bigotry? And the kid goes, I don't know what biggery is. Yeah. I don't know what biggery is either. (laughs) But those kids wouldn't have been too much older than I am. So, you know, I was obviously I was an infant at the time, but I mean. If this had been recorded in like 1974, you could have, it was like kids that age. So yeah, compared to me anyway. Yeah. This one popped up on like a rerun of like the top forties that I listened to like maybe about a year ago. And I was like, what the hell is this? Yeah. They they don't make them like this anymore. And Tom Clay actually had launched him into, you know, a pretty big time radio career. Um, But yeah, it was it was of its time without a without definitely. A yeah, <laughs> that leads us to number four. Love is a beautiful song by David or by Dave Mills. Easy listening. Um, we covered Schlager in our German episode, and this is basically an English language English language Schlager song. Um, it's like something you'd hear on like Lawrence Welk or something like that. Um, Dave Mills was from South Africa. Um, this song was a huge hit over there and in the neighboring unrecognized state of Rhodesia. Um, and that makes sense because this sounds like something that people who are pro-apartheid would be into because um, it's basically one of the whitest songs ever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, he does also look exactly like Matt Flinders. So it's possible that they might have also been the same person. So, but yeah, this one, not really that great, but they loved it in Rhodesia. That's another country that I learned in my early um, encyclopedia that I'm like, Zimbabwe? The hell is that? Right. Like it's Rhodesia. They have a green, white and green flag. I, I'm, I'm surprised <laughs> I, that they would even have that version of Rhodesia because I think they were like officially South Rhodesia. Well, but this time. caught right between independence and, uh, you know, when Zimbabwe was formed in 1980. So I, I caught a very brief period of time. Uh, okay. It was called, no, Z- Zambia was Southern Rhodesia. Um, Zimbabwe was Northern Rhodesia. Are, are you sure about that? I, I think it's reversed. I'll bet you 10 bucks. Okay, that, okay. Zimbabwe is northern Rhodesia. I'm almost certain of it. Okay, let's let's look this up here. You look it up. And while I mentioned that, I also believe Belize should be called British Honduras. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, 
was was Suriname in there or were they still like Dutch Guyana? No, no, they were they were um they were British Guyana. <laughs> Suriname was Dutch Guyana, right. They were both, you know, their various colonial powers. Let's see. Northern Rhodesia was Zambia. Oh, Southern, well. Southern Rhodesia was Zimbabwe. Man. <laughs> Flipping. Just shoot me. <laughs> That's, um, anyway, moving to number three here, we have Susan Ray with LA International Airport. Well, as I mentioned, I, I really had no clue how big country was in Australia. Um, this, this is a country song. Susan Ray was a country singer. And it was a much bigger hit in Australia and New Zealand than it ever was in America. It hit number two in Oz and number one in New Zealand, actually. Um, it only got to number nine on the U.S. country chart and never made the top 40 here at all. Um, it's not bad. It, it's, you know, kind of like I said, if um, if um, Help Me Make It Through the Night was kind of an evolution in country, this is what it was evolving from. So but it's actually not too far apart from that. Um, that brings us to the Wikipedia fun fact of the week. Okay. Week, sponsored by unintended consequences. Um, quote, Susan Ray, who has been retired from the music industry since 1986, made a rare public appearance to sing her hit at a concert at the celebration uh, and to be on hand when a proclamation was issued to make this song the official song of LAX uh, during the 50th anniversary of the actual LA international airport. And I say unintended consequences because having been to LAX a few times, mm -hmm. I feel bad for Susan Ray that her name is attached to such a hellish piece of human misery. <laughs> is it, it's not is as, it bad as bad as O'Hare? No. I mean, although I will say this, when we, uh, when I last flew out of LAX, which was a couple years ago with the whole family and we ended up having a, a flight delay and we were hungry um, the the food options were pretty limited because they split them. The LAX is split up into like uh, it's not like O'Hare in that it's vast and you can move around. You are more confined to a, <clears throat> the terminal that you're in, uh -huh. so you're pretty much stuck with whatever is in there. And I just recall the food options were poor. Huh. It's it's not the worst airport. It's not L, it's not as bad as O'Hare. Um, it's probably on par with Atlanta, maybe some of the East huh. Coast area. It's not as bad as Philly, um, but it's not as good as Detroit or Denver or Seattle, um, which are some good airports I've flown through. Huh. So that's what everybody comes here here for: airport rankings, <laughs> right? Yeah, or not as bad as. Frankly, Mitchell Field in Milwaukee, which is one of the worst ones I've ever flown into. So that, that is that is a pretty bad airport. Yeah, awful. um, <laughs> hate that because it's my hometown airport. I should have some pride. Right. Yeah. Anyhow, number two for you is uh, "Come Back Again" by the aforementioned Daddy Cool. And this is very similar to Eagle Rock, uh, which we covered earlier. Um, kind of lazy, goofy country blues shuffle. Uh, with like the Stones esque guitar, and it wasn't released as a single anywhere outside of Australia or New Zealand, and it did have a video though, which is black and white and mostly shows the band goofing off. And 
that gets me to what might be a new feature on here. Um, the YouTube comment of the week. Oh, all right. Okay, this is this is from the user Tommy Two Bats, and he wrote, "I heard this album. I heard the album version drunk in the back of my mate's HT wagon at the lights near Elsternwick Station in 1981. Ross Hannaford and the right speaker, Ross Wilson on the left playing their guitars. Ross Wilson was just plugged." plucking gently from the fifth to the third with a beautiful and sweet touch while Hannaford was chewing up the spuds on his E string. <laughs> what, what a perfect moment. <laughs> you do have to... time, there's, there's more to this. There's more to this. Uh, from that time, I was retarded permanently. Never <laughs> to see the sunlight of a new life. Just think Depeche Mode, Joy Division, and so many more new visions emerging. And I was love struck with this nostalgia as I am today. And there are also at least 20 comments that just said, Aussie, 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 oi, oi, oi. Yeah. Oh, you definitely, (laughs) that's got to be a feature of the week. I love it. The YouTube (laughs) comment of the week. Yes, yes. (laughs) But, but yeah, I mean, there's at least one comment like that on, like, every music YouTube. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that'll be a good feature. I like it. Yeah, yeah, yep. But we're at number one here. Yep. Here we go. Uh, Drummond with Daddy Cool. Yeah, I was like, what the fuck? I mean, we've had Daddy Cool twice, and now we get a song called Daddy Cool. They're kind of related, um, but what is undeniable is that this is has anything, that this has everything to do with pure hell. Um, (laughs) So... The band Daddy Cool named themselves after the 50s doo-wop song of the same name um, uh, from, from the late 50s. And so Daddy Cool, the band, was popular in Australia. So Alison Gross, who was an Adelaide band, that's not a person, that's a band, <laughs> uh, decided to do a tribute to the band by recording the original Daddy Cool song, uh, the doo-wop song. A-okay, right? So... Uh, wrong. They, for some reason, decided to record it as a novelty song in the style of the Chipmunks. Yep. <laughs> and as we've established here before, I hate the fucking Chipmunks uh, with the power of a thousand suns. Um, but I didn't know how bad it could be until I heard a second-rate rip-off Chipmunks, which is what this is. <laughs> um, it's even more irksome that the original Daddy Cool song is a pretty good doo-wop song, and they just shit all over it for fun. It's like, right. let's take all the cool stuff that's in Daddy Cool, kind of the call-outs and doo-wop stuff, and let's make it, like, wacky. <laughs> um, for this transgression, Australia deserves every bit of scorn it's ever received um, over the years. <laughs> this is worse than Timey Kangaroo Down, without a doubt. Yeah. Uh, and also worse than Yahoo Serious. Um, okay. This is just a fake justification alone for the Simpsons episode that was seemingly an unprovoked attack on Australia yes. for no good reason when it came out. Um, <laughs> it, it, it makes you want a beer bong Drano. It's totally bad. After a, a really good run of interesting songs in this chart, this was a, this might be the most downer number one uh, we've had. I know there's been a few. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this was just brutal. And in a bit of trivia... Daddy Cool's Eagle Rock actually replaced this 
as the number one song in the chart. So hmm. there is there is a god basically. <laughs> so you had I, it'd be interesting. Somebody who visited Australia, like when the Casey Kasem top forty was actually on air, probably could have sent him a letter. You know how he answered like facts about the chart. Uh-huh. Like, dear Casey, has there ever been a song with the same title as the band it replaced? Yeah, well, probably not in America, but in uh, Australia, it actually happened. Right. So there you go, and on with the countdown. <laughs> So, yeah, quite a kind of a downer to end on that after um, a, an interesting chart. Right. Yeah. Ex- yeah, exactly. So, so what do we have that, next week? Next week, we're going to get a little bit more standard. Um, I am the album chart guy. So we're doing an album chart from Halloween 1987. Ooh, OK. So we're delving into the late 80s albums. Okay. Okay. That should be interesting. Yeah. Um, several I, I had at the time. Well, not several, a few that I had. So are there, are there any like Halloween themed <laughs> albums on this or? I didn't check it enough. I just kind of picked a date and, uh, and uh, rolled with it. So. Okay. Okay. I do know what I was doing on Halloween 1987. I, I know what I was doing, too. I, I actually know what I was dressed up as. Really? What were you dressed up as? Um, this was actually our sister's idea, but I dressed up as a TV set. I had, okay. I, I had, like, a box, and we painted it brown, and the front was cut off, and I was the picture of the TV set. And <laughs> one, one guy refused to give me a candy because... I wasn't on the station that the Pacers were on. <laughs> I, I kind of remember that outfit now that you mentioned it, but I'd forgotten about that. But that's funny that he didn't give you any candy over that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think they would have been on Channel 4 back in those days. Maybe he worked for Channel 4 or something. Could, could be, could be. Maybe yeah. it was literally one of the Pacers because we had several Pacers living in our neighborhood at the time. Yeah, that's true. Um, Vern Fleming and um, Clark Kellogg. And... Um, um, one of the other Pacers did. Jerry Seasting lived in the neighborhood for a oh, while. Oh, really? Huh. Wayne Gretzky lived in our neighborhood before we were there. Huh. Did you know that? He lived in Eagle Nest. I didn't know that. Huh. Yeah, well, supposedly. I mean, huh. yeah. When he worked, when he played for the Indianapolis Racers of the WHA. Right. What? Wonder if he hung out at the Eagle Nest pool at all. Probably. He would have been. <laughs> he would have been young enough too at that point. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Probably wouldn't have been out drinking unless, you know, it's not like the racers were like popular in Indy. I mean, um, I'm trying to picture like a teenaged Wayne Gretzky showing up in Broad Ripple. Like, <laughs> oh, let me into the bar. I play for the racers. Like who? <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, we're going to 1987. And what I was doing on Halloween 87, um, at least I think, I don't know, maybe it was 88. I forget. But one of the Halloweens in that era, I was on. I was at a Monday Night Football game. Oh, okay, okay, yeah, yeah. I think it. It well, I can't remember what year it was. Now I'm old. <laughs> Where the Colts absolutely cornholed the Denver Broncos on Monday Night Football. It was the yeah. first ever Monday Night Football game in Indy. Hmm. So, and I still have a Dan Deerdorf mask from it. <laughs> nice. Yeah. 
Anyway, that's what we got. But before we go, before we part, and thank you everybody for listening, I do want to play the greatest cultural moment in Australian history. Okay. You ready for this? We'll see you next week. All right. See you, everyone. Here we go. Oh, I should have had it queued up better. All right. Here we go. Greatest Australian moment in history. Go. See, I should have guessed that they love country music. Yeah, yeah, I know. Anyway, thanks for listening, everybody. Yeah, see everyone. Are you coming in or are you going to piss about all day? You're bloody finished. You know that, Jack. I'm bloody finished, you. <laughs> <laughs>